0: Hello there. This is Talent and Growth. I am Paul Church, as you know, and uh, today we are joined by Hannah Lit. Uh, now, I had Hannah on, on the podcast last year and we were talking around um, how to create equity in the workplace um, via remote working and a more flexible work, working uh, pattern. Um, today, we, we, I thought about it and we're talking quite a quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of topics because we're talking about a mental well-being, we're talking about white supremacy, we're talking about businesses' responsibility and, and everybody's responsibility, really, with, with these areas. So it's a really enlightening conversation for, for me. I feel like I learn a lot when I speak to Hannah and when, when I see her posts on LinkedIn, um, she's someone I, I follow and, and, and like to listen to. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode. And listen, if you are enjoying talent and growth as a whole, do give us a like, give us a subscribe, share us with a friend, keep the movement going um, and we'll keep doing this. So hope you enjoy the episode. Here is Hannah. Hannah, welcome back to Talent and Growth. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm really good, thanks. Really good. And uh, for those of uh, the audience who perhaps haven't heard our episode before or don't know who you are, do you mind giving a bit of an intro into who you are and what you do?
1: Yes, um, I, my name is Hannah Litt. I am currently the head of equity, diversity, inclusion and anti-racism and resourcing at MindReaver. So I look after everything, um, equity, diversity, inclusion, anti-racism, resourcing. Well-being communities, marketing, comms uh, and I've got a fantastic team that support me um and then kind of outside of work, I kind of speak a lot around all of those things, um do a little bit of keynote speaking podcasts um yeah, I just talk a lot really that's that's me.
0: Good, well, thank you for talking to us today. And uh, look, plenty plenty to talk around today. And uh, we're going to be covering some topics around uh, mental well-being and health and and, and, and both from a, a business point of view. And I know you're, you're, you're going to share a bit about your own personal journey. Um, but um, before we do that, do you mind just kind of sharing any kind of trends you're seeing in the market right now, the, the kind of things that keep popping up in conversation for you, just any kind of observations you've got?
1: Um. I guess it depends where you're looking. Um, so for me, the conversation has stayed the same. I think, you know, things Things keep popping up, but the conversation kind of stays the same. I think we're seeing a lot of things that we spoke about, about people kind of going back to the office. I think things are waning around... Um, the equity diversity inclusion space people have kind of lost I think they call it what is it inclusion fatigue or whatever um but you've still got the people that are going well this impacts me so I ain't got I don't really have the the luxury of getting fatigued um the conversations around anti-racism are still going strong for those that are uh you know stomping the streets to, to make it happen um but largely I do feel a little bit like people are kinda of like, Can you just be quiet now and can we just go back to normal? Um, so I guess it just depends where you are and what you are trying to talk about. But I think those that are impacted by systemic issues are still very, very tired. Um, because you only need to switch on the news to see that every day you know, if we if we <laughs> talked about something that happened we'd be talking every day because it's still you know and actually how it's impacting our climate for example who's impacted the most all that kind of stuff it's it's very tiring um so yeah and i think that's why the, the the mental health and all that kind of stuff is really important that we talk about as well
0: yeah absolutely and i think our last episode last year we were talking about how to create equity in the workplace by by um advocating and implementing a more of a, a flexible uh, way of working um and i think it, it our conversation around that kind of stemmed from a post you put out there, which I agreed based on a guy who went on a diary of a CEO, and he kind of was saying how you know everyone should be basically in the office or whatever. Which obviously you and I both have shared opinions on that. Um, that quite to the contrary, since our conversation last year, I've actually I've definitely for me I've definitely seen more of a drive to get people back to the office, and that has for me been if I'm being cynical coincided with perhaps the fear. This in the market and the economy and what's going on in the world and stuff like that. And I've seen perhaps a little bit of a drive um, to get people back to the office based on that fear. Do you, do you think that's, do you see that as well?
1: I think, again, I think it comes back to the fear, the micromanagement, the, but also what's really sad is that I'm seeing people that are also in the space that I'm in, um that have you know that are on one hand talking about you know disability inclusion all of that kind of stuff and then they're also saying to their teams or whatever that or their or employees in in their workplace that actually you know you need to get back into the office so you can't support disability inclusion or you know um support people that are parents or caregivers or carers or whatever that And then at the same time say that you need to get back into the office when actually they can do their job well when they're they're not in the office. So you can't, and I think what's really important is people that are carers, people that are parents, people that are disabled or neurodivergent or whatever, they can't, it's not for like, you know, six weeks. So we're not going to give you that flexibility for six weeks. And yeah, you work at home or you um, have compressed hours, whatever it is for, for, for six weeks but then you know after that we're going to go back to what you know what we perceive to be normal um and you do it because the amount of stress and pressure and anxiety and all of that 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 gives on that person that then makes them ill or whatever it's it's unreal and I think that's a and then and then you know then then we put out a mental health campaign about how we really care about mental health and I think that's what really I think I find that really frustrating.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, cool. Well, looks let's uh, let, let's talk about mental health. So, as someone who speaks quite a lot about the importance of mental health and well-being, what do you see as the responsibility of employers and HR departments to support employees with their well-being and mental health? What I think it's r-
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important to um, look at mental health. Um, as a whole, but also look at it intersectionally. So, um, at Mindweaver, I've been we we, I think it's the first organisation where we've really looked at it in a different way. So, I used to get a lot of in previous organisations. You know, people used to say to me, "Hannah, you care too much. Like it's too much for you. Like you really care. Like here's the employee assistance program number. Just give that person that, and you know." That's kind of your bit done. Like as a pupil function, we just we just give them the number, and you know then that's there. But at Mind it's a real you know we talk about trauma, we talk about the impacts of racism on trauma, we talk about it intersectionally. We really actually we talk about anxiety, we talk about you know we do things like reflective practices. We've got a fantastic, I've got a member of my team who's just fantastic. She's our wellbeing and community manager. She's fantastic, but we we really holistically we talk about mental health we talk about people might not even realize how their mental health is being impacted um and it you don't realize actually the the impacts of actually just caring and being there and showing up and doing what you need to do and how that can essentially save someone because people we all have lives outside of work right and when we are expecting people to show up in a way or if people are not turning up for a call or whatever. We need to ask why rather than um, because it's a really tough time right now. People are struggling. People can't pay their bills. People, like I said, are carers. People are all of that kind of stuff. So, But also it's understanding. I was working with, um, I had a conversation with the um, hidden, the sunflower, the hidden disability sunflower scheme. And they were saying that actually the uptake that they have in the black and brown community to actually take up the lanyard is really small and they couldn't understand why so we were having a conversation actually people that are black and brown life is hard enough when you are walking down the street or whatever with from a racism perspective so why would you want to put a lanyard on to say actually you know I'm disabled as well or I'm struggling with anxiety or I I have you know whatever it may be from a disability or a or a mental health perspective um, because it's another barrier So actually the access to even have the privilege To wear the lanyard or whatever So there's a massive thing around health inequities Having access to it Speaking about it The support You know I've had to work really really hard To find a therapist I've been through six therapists To just find one that actually I can connect with That understands me From an intersectional point of view From a race point of view All of that kind of stuff So having the access for for certain people of the global majority intersectionally is huge. So, you know, it's really, really important that we also understand that that, you know, just giving someone an EAP number and not understanding actually the challenges and the barriers that certain people will face is huge.
0: And what's the what's the right way for business to businesses to, to be better at that then? So how, how do we get how do businesses get better at, at supporting people during that journey?
1: I think it's understanding that as a HR function you might not have the answers. You need to either engage with your DNI team, but also understand that anti-racism isn't embedded in EDNI. So it, a lot of edI is right. It's, this is D&I or this is edI Anti-racism is a whole kind of strand on its own. And if you don't have that expertise and you don't know that, then bring someone in bring someone in, bring a consultant, bring someone in. Don't just try and badge it all together because they are very, very specific barriers that the global majority, black women, black men feel and go through. And you need to understand that to be able to support them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, makes sense. Um, You've been quite um, open on LinkedIn. Um, We had a couple of uh, comments and messages around it, just around your, your personal experience trying to get an ADHD diagnosis, which I've got not first-hand experience, but second-hand experience of myself. Um, do you mind just sharing a bit about about that?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I did a, a couple of other podcasts just around me not even understanding, well, kind of going through my whole life, um, knowing that something... I was different, um, but not kind of understanding what... And then I kind of went to... I th- TikTok is a great thing right (laughs) I mean sometimes um and I think I was kind of looking through and I was like hold on a minute like this this feels a bit um like me um I kind of do these things so um I went to my GP and my GP was like actually Hannah you know I've known you for a long time and I was actually going to say that you know you are displaying symptoms just the whole process of um Going through the ADHD diagnosis, I mean, the the process itself takes a really long time. But the added layers of systemic racism in the healthcare um, system. So I had, um, so I did go private for parts of it, but just actually, I had one instance, for example, where I had my diagnosis and then I went to AGP. Um, I couldn't get, so I have one GP that I go to because that is the one that actually there is only one that I kind of feel that I am slightly safe with. Um, So I went to another GP and my diagnosis was in front of said GP and um, said GP didn't believe me (laughs) that I had ADHD. There was a 27 page diagnosis and I still wasn't believed. Um, And this is a common thing that happens. But that battle, and I'm still going through, now I have had to go through to just get my medication. I'm now on my third round of, so I've been through three prescribing sessions. Um, And then I was given to another department because I was told I was complex and nobody wanted to touch me. Um, There is, and I'm on three medications. (laughs) Uh, One's for migraine, one's for heartburn, and I'm on a vitamin B12 injection. But I was told I was complex and the words were, we don't want to touch you. So the battles that you have to go through. Um, and then I kind of spoke to other people and I'm not saying that their 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 journey has been easy. But, you know, I went for um, an endoscopy two days ago. And I think if anybody else tells me that they don't want to do, they don't want to help me and I just have to manage because I'm complex. I think I'll spontaneously combust because that's, that's all I've been told for the last three weeks is you're too complex you just need to manage um and that's what I've been told all my life with all my diet all my diagnosis is that you're just going to have to manage um and this I guess was just another thing was like you're going to have to wait or you and you're just going to have to manage and I think this is again it's nuanced and the reason I talk about my ADHD and the diagnosis and is because when I kind of went out there I couldn't see anybody that looked like me I couldn't see anyone that looked like me that was talking about the the nuances in the journey that we go through as people of the global majority going through diagnosis and navigating through a healthcare system that essentially just wasn't designed for us. Um So I'm not saying that anybody else's journey has been easy. I don't want to say that at all. I know it's it's not an easy journey, but navigating it as somebody in the global majority, it just has that nuance to it.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah it's, it's a, I'm really sorry that you, you you've experienced that, and, and where are you kind of I suppose where are you at now in terms of I suppose how you feel about that and what what you need to do to get right for yourself.
1: I think I think about two weeks ago I was super angry. I think I was so angry. I think I cried. I was so, um, and I'm really lucky that I've got a great team around me in at work. Um, I I could feel for the first time ever. I think I could just because I was actually when I found out I was at work I was in a forum you know with every single employee in the organization and I could feel everything that I needed to feel that day and that was an amazing feeling just having that team around me but also I guess this week I can say how I feel I can I can manage it I guess it's not ideal because I'm not managing by any means but I can in the workplace because in the workplace was where I struggled the most but I can struggle, and they know I'm struggling, and they support me while I'm struggling, and I think that's the difference. Um, I kind of said that day it happened that I've got no more fight in me to do this anymore, and I'm just going to have to wait and see what happens, you know. But then the next morning I woke up and I, I I fought again, and I'm still fighting. So I've got an appointment next week with my GP again to say like, you know, what do we do now? And the reality is that you know, when you are living in survival mode and fighting is all you know how to do you just you just have to carry on and, and, and that's what it is and I have spoken to about 10 different people since then and that's what I'll carry on doing until I find the solution to just to, to get in what I need
0: and what with um, what advice would you give to I suppose that you know maybe listeners who may suspect they may have ADHD or any other neurodivergent condition what what advice based on your experiences or just your perspective do you have for navigating that process within a professional context
1: Um, have a network find people find people that um, can talk you through their journey because I think the 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 hardest thing for me was that I didn't know anybody I didn't have I didn't have anybody to speak to I just had to navigate this journey on my own because I didn't I didn't know anyone um so I was literally just navigating this journey on my own trying to figure it out now I now there is a couple more you know I've had to, a couple people that can help me but I'm 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 too far through do you know what I mean like because they're like actually you know maybe you could have done this or you could have done that or maybe you could have done it this way or you could have done it that way I didn't have anybody to tell me how to do this um because I think what we don't also have I don't want to call it the luxury or whatever but um is in my home in my community we don't talk about these things so um you know in my household my mum was like "Mm," you know even with my if you can't see it it doesn't exist so you know ADHD isn't a thing my fibro isn't a thing it's like if you can't see it it doesn't exist so that and that's quite common in in the South Asian community. You know, it very it's very kind of new that we're actually talking about these and we're even acknowledging that they they exist and that there is support available. So I didn't really have anybody to to help me navigate this system of actually what I should be doing. So if, if for anybody else is to, is find somebody or find more than one person that can just help talk you through what you should be doing or how to navigate it or and just yeah just help you. Um, and if you can't find anyone come to me and I'll tell you what I did and don't do that.
0: I <laughs> well, appreciate that. Thank you for, for offering your, your help to the listeners. And In your experience, what, what are some of the common barriers to addressing mental health in the workplace and how can companies work to overcome these barriers?
1: I think they, they um, it feels very, for organisations that have been in, it feels very transactional. It feels like, you know what, we'll just send out some comms, we'll have an EAP. So we worked really hard with all of our um, kind of providers to make sure that, you know, even with our kind of EAPs and stuff that we use to make sure that the therapists that we'd have would be intersectional and they would be able to provide the support and actually how would they contact them and all of so just making sure speak to your teams and see what they need. First of all, um, see if it's going to work for them. Make sure, you know, so everything we have brought in. Whether that be benefits, whether that be support, we've made sure that actually we speak to our teams to make sure that that's going to work for them. Is that going to, if it's not going to work for them, then don't bring it in. Um, And make sure you have those regular conversations with them. Make sure you're talking to them. But most of all, create a space of psychological safety. Because if you do not have that, none of it's going to work
0: we could do a whole episode i'm almost reluctant to ask this question because we could do a whole episode on it but what are the, the what are the foundations of building an environment of psychological safety
1: it will be different for every single person but at the end of the day it's you only get that by you know so when i joined mindriver my i so i joined before my team and my first their objective when they joined was to you know be be have a look round, see what you need, but my the objective sat with me, and my objective was to make them feel. Now, I'm not going to say that they feel 100% safe, I'm not going to say, because there's no timeline on safety, right? Um, I can't say that I feel 100% safe at Mindweaver, and that's not because of anything mind Mindweaver's, and that's my past experiences, that's my trauma, that's what I went through in my previous organisation, previous managers, etc, etc. So for me my objective was to make them feel as safe as possible and that is my ongoing objective and that meant me showing up for them whether they needed some whether they were unwell like or whether their family needed something or whatever that was that just me meant me showing up for my team in whichever way so people that say you know I just treat my team all the same I have never ever, I can categorize, I've never treated my team all the same because my team are not the same. In any organisation, I've never treated my, they're not the same, their needs are different. So I treat my team dependent on what they need and I try, I'm not perfect and I've always said this to my team, I'm not perfect, I will make mistakes but what I will come promise is that I'll show up the best I can when you need me. And hopefully that creates safety.
0: Yeah, love it. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So let's talk about a slightly diff- well, a different area. Um, so you've also spoken public- publicly about the importance of overcoming white supremacy in the workplace. So what do you think are the most effective steps companies can take to create a more equitable workplaces with that in mind? Uh,
1: so white supremacy isn't just in the workplaces, it's, it's everywhere. Um, so if I knew the solution to overcoming it, um, well, you know, that's 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 a pretty big one. Um, but I think what white people, so I think the most important thing is is that this that people realise that this is a, a white problem. Uh, this is a, a problem that has been created by white people, and that will make people wince when they hear that because they go, "Well, it wasn't me. I didn't do it." Um, so this is actually a a white people problem to solve. Um, And to dismantle because essentially, you know, we as a global majority, we don't hold the power, you know, so the, and that, that is the first thing that they need to recognize actually that they hold the power and this is, this is a, a system that they need to dismantle. So that is a, that is the first thing they need to do and then they need to do it and they need to remove the fragility that comes with it, the, a lot of conversations that I've been having recently with people that are white has been, you know, okay, if I do this, then what's in it for me? So, um, you know, but actually, what what am, what am I going to get for this? And my my kind of response has been like, you know, what, what do you mean, what's in this for you? Like, you're, you're, this is about kind of saving humanity. You know? <laughs> this is about doing the right thing. This isn't about actually, you know... Do you get a pat on the back at the end of it, or do you get a box of chocolate? Like this isn't what it's about. This is about actually showing up. And I am well aware that I am South Asian. I have been raised in a system of white supremacy. You know, we, I, I'm not absolved because I I face racism. I'm not absolved of being racist either. Um, anti-blackness is a thing in my community so I have to do the work as well um, so that that's really important that you know people of the global majority have not uh, absolved of this um, you know anti-blackness is a thing I have to work at this every day as well so um, and also it doesn't you know people that look like me can also uphold white supremacy that that's also a thing so um, but also we need to look at who holds the power um, as a whole who Who's most likely to be writing the policies? Who's most likely to be signing off the, 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 pay, the pay at the end of the day? All of that kind of stuff is what we need to be looking at. Um, and a lot of that work comes from within and removing your own, I guess, fragility from it and doing, doing the work.
0: Uh, yeah, OK. And, and, and for the white listeners who may feel overwhelmed or you know, wincing in terms of like, like you mentioned a minute ago or, or unsure how they can contribute to dismantling white supremacy? What are some tangible steps they can take to make a difference, do you think?
1: So there is, um, I mean, I always say Google is free. Um, So Google is there.
0: But it wouldn't (laughs) make a very good podcast, would it? (laughs) but,
1: But there is a really, I mean, there is so many creators out there that are putting out so so many creators of the global majority that are putting out free content every single day um so you have i mean i'm putting out content you've got elizabeth lieber you have sharon hurley hall um actually i'll I'll, I'll put a list out um at the end of this you've got shereen daniels you've got um abby adamson there is there is so many people that are putting out great content actually and and there's some great books as well people that i've mentioned earlier they have books uh, out there as well um syra rao regina jackson there's there's so many great people out there that are putting out great content for free using their emotional labor um they do have um cash apps and stuff that you can pay them for which you should pay them for um so it's all there you just need to read and you need to digest and you need to just take away the um the emotion from it. because at the end of the day you know we have I always say like people of the global majority have lived in discomfort our whole lives you know somebody once said to me Hannah you know you can't see an injustice when I see it I just like to turn my phone around and put it on put it away because I can't see it and this was a white woman and what I had to say to her was, that's your privilege. You know, you get to turn your phone around and not look at it. I said, but when I go to the supermarket or I go to the shop or I can't turn the colour of my skin off, so I still get the microaggressions. When I go into the office and I get the looks or whatever, I don't get to turn it off. So the, the fact that you get to do that, good for you, because that's your, that's your privilege. And that there is you upholding the white supremacy. So that's what people need to there's so much content out there it's unreal
0: yeah I'm a, I'm a follower i've kind of followed i think i followed shireen accidentally since the beginning of her kind of journey on linkedin a big fan of her had her on, on the pod last year and uh, i've got a book on my, on my bookcase as well so i do recommend her and that absolutely um what, what, what has been your experience with the intersection of mental health and racial justice in the workplace and how do these two issues intersect in your work
1: hugely hugely so A lot of, so if anybody had asked me if um, I, well, if if my mental health was impacted by anything, I would have probably said no, Um, until I started to really, I guess, unpack my own stuff, which I probably started to do about, I'm going to say about 18 months ago. I really started to, and it's ongoing, but the amount of, um, the impact that racial trauma has had on my mental health that I had locked away, um, and not even realised systemically through systems, through schooling, um, the fact that I actually am 36 oh. years old and my, um, my, that I was, that I had ADHD and I was just written off, um, there is definitely a racial element in there because i was if 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 anybody hears my story and, and what I kind of went through and the systems and all that kind of stuff, there was definitely a racial element in there because I was the only child of color, but also the way I was treated um it was it was a real nuanced so it's it's really and but also working in the organization that I work in now, seeing um the impacts and the trauma that people have faced at the hands of Managers, organizations that people don't even realize because the, I still have moments now. And I was speaking to a friend yesterday where I think of, of situations that I was in in previous organizations where I go, hold on a minute. That wasn't right. And it still, it still comes back to me now because th- there were, there were microaggressions that so we normalize so much of it that it happens on a daily. And you go, hold on a minute, that that wasn't okay. I actually went through a, an old WhatsApp chat yesterday with um, an old manager in a previous organisation um, of mine. And I was like, whoa, that was not okay. That was not okay. Um, so you, we're still, even though we may have left organisations, there may be two organisations, whatever it may be, we're still working through and, and that hasn't an, it. And those were racial microaggressions. There were things that we were just dealing with and it impacts your mental health because it can't not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then um, when we spoke prior to this call, there's something um, I wanted to ask you a question about. Was What about the role of white women in dismantling racism in the workplace and what <laughs> unique responsibilities do they have?
1: So it's a really interesting one. And actually we are... Um, Bring in. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen uh, Race to Dinner, a show called Deconstructing Karen, um, to the UK, um, because it's a really, really important conversation. So a lot of times we focus on, um, I've heard this term, pale, stale, male, um, and I'm not saying that white men don't have a role to play. And I've had some really interesting conversations and experiences with white men, Um But I think because white women, because we, everybody is focusing a lot on kind of gender equity and, you know, oh, look, we've made, we've made loads of progress because, you know, look, we've got X amount of women on our board, et cetera, et cetera. So I think women, white women get, uh, we focus a lot on women's oppression. Um, but white women fail to recognize the privilege that they have. Um, and the, fact that they uphold white supremacy massively now i have spoken to a lot of women from the global majority and actually the harm that has been caused by white women is massive um and i think they need to acknowledge actually the, the role that they they play in upholding white supremacy um and i think that's a really really important conversation that we need to have um that isn't acknowledged um i had a conversation yesterday with um where you know a white woman um referred to me as as kind of a commodity so to speak which is you know it's not okay um but it's all about kind of gender equity and all of this great stuff so it's really really important that they recognize that you know yes we we need to talk about women's equity but actually they need to they have a, a real amount of privilege and what are they doing to support women of the global majority and black women um, and trans women, etc. But And all of that kind of good stuff. But what are they doing? And and I think that's something that we really need to unpack and have those conversations.
0: Do you want me to ask you what the context was for that person described you as a commodity? Because I was just like, in my head, I was just like, wow. Um... Um,
1: if I do, I think it will just, <laughs> I don't want to kind of go into it because I think it was... It would it will um I'll have to say the whole context of the conversation. Escalate.
0: Okay, no worries, that's um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> But it it's a it's a really important I think it just goes back to kind of um the tokenism side of things that actually, you know, where where white white women can be like, you know, actually we've got but actually let's just let's we can roll one person in of the global majority or a black and we're we're okay. Um but the rest of us will elevate ourselves. So I think it's really, really important that you know white women that are in the room. The question is, is what? What are you doing to dismantle when you're in there and pave the way for women of the global majority? Because I think what we do see is a lot of white women, um, you know, are we, we're making quite a lot of progress, I'd, I'd say, in the, the gender equity space. But who are they rolling the ladders up for? That. Is it for, for women and actually addressing their own rights? Because white supremacy sits within them as well. Um, I think it's really important. And without kind of going into a history lesson, because um, we'll be here for another hour, um, it's really, really important to understand the, the role that they played within white supremacy as well, and history and slavery and colonisation and all that kind of good stuff.
0: Gotcha. OK, thanks for sharing that. Um, how can companies foster a workplace culture that values and supports diversity, equity and inclusion?
1: Um, well, that's a big question. Authenticity is a good one. Um, I feel it's still very, very tick boxy. Um, I think it's for, you know, ask yourself why you're doing it. So I feel like a lot of people are still doing it for the investors. They're doing it because they feel they need to, um, You know, oh, look, the numbers have gone up, etc. Like, diversity doesn't mean inclusion. I think that's really, really important. And I think um, it's about action. You know, it's still... How... Organisations have been doing this now for years, Okay, How are we still here? How are people still feeling like they don't belong? How is there still systemic race? Like, we need to get to the point where people are actually looking at the systems and the processes, like, just by bringing in more people, it's not going to make it, you need to look at your systems, your processes, the way, it needs to be knocked on, it's it's got to be a huge shift, and a huge change, and I don't think, a lot of organisations, have got their head around, this this isn't just, you know, a programme here, and a programme there, and a policy, like this is a huge, it's a huge shift, that needs to happen.
0: Gotcha, and then final question, I suppose for today, um, I'd love to have you back, another time for sure, but, for listeners who may be struggling with their, their mental health challenges or or navigating racial dynamics in the workplace, or both, um, what advice would you give them for advocating for themselves and, and maybe seeking some support?
1: Um, first of all, you're not alone. Um, and it's okay to feel that way. Um, when you do feel that way, sometimes you feel shame, you feel like you shouldn't feel that way. You feel that you're the only person in the world. And I think it's really easy to look and see people out there and you think, you know, I'm gonna swear that they've all got their shit together. Um most of us do not. I'm just gonna put it out there. Um everybody struggles and reach out to someone and i I know that's a really easy thing to say because when you're in that space reaching out to someone is the hardest thing to do um but just know there is support out there there is there and you know everybody says everyone should have a therapist but i also know therapists are not affordable all the time you know not everyone can afford a therapist it's not easy um see if your organization does have like an eap um EAPs normally offer like eight or four or something free sessions of, of therapy. Um, there's also no shame in having therapy. Therapy is a great thing. Um, but even, just, even if you just have one person you can talk to, like there is no shame in it. Absolutely no shame in it. Um, talking is awesome. But if you can't journal, write it down. Just find some way to get your emotions out. Go for a walk. But just know that there is always... Someone out there that will want to listen to you, that will want to talk to you, and it's okay to feel the way you do, like it's perfectly normal. We all are battling something, and it's okay.
0: Beautifully put. Um, Hannah, if anyone wants to reach out to you after listening to this, what's the best way for them to LinkedIn. do so? LinkedIn. LinkedIn, it is well. Hannah, thank you so much for coming back and having a chat with me. I'd love to have you back another time, but thanks again for being a part of Talent and Growth. Thank
1: you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode of talent and growth and now i've got a question for you how does your business's talent acquisition function compare to your peers in the market are your operational mechanics optimized to make your hiring strategy successful are you in the best possible position to attract the best people in the market for your vacancies is your talent process fluid and effective enough to deliver a great candidate experience? And are you using the right tech to enable slick data capturing and data utilization? Are you doing all of the the above correctly? And are you really cementing your TA function as a strategic partner in the business? Well, I can give you the answers to that. If you spend three to four minutes completing the survey in the notes of this podcast, you'll get a report finding out how your TA function stacks up. Not only that, you'll help the community by identifying the challenges we all need to work on solving together. So have a look in the footnotes of this podcast. Take the health check. It's called the Enemo Hiring Health Check. Take a look now, fill in the details, get a report, help the community. It's win-win. Have a great day.